Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Well, when you're ready, sir, let's get going. Let's go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is John Boyer from uh, the Boyer Group. They have a very well-known research service and uh, an asset management arm. They've been around for 45 years on Wall Street. There aren't very many who've been around longer. I'm going to talk to John right after this. Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit AcquiresFunds.com. Hey, John, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. So, uh, many folks will know the name Boyer, but if you could just give us a little uh, history of the firm. Absolutely. As you, as you mentioned, we're celebrating on Monday. We celebrated our, our 45th anniversary, which is absolutely amazing. My father started the business in 1975, right in the middle of a brutal bear market. I and mean, it was probably the worst time, but the best time in retrospect to, to start a business like this. And we started as a research boutique and we provided independent research to hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, etc. And we slowly morphed over time. We got a, a good reputation in, in the community, in the value community. People asked him to manage money, etc. So we started managing money in 1983. So we have really two sides of the business that are separate, but very much uh, related. We have an institutional research on Boyer Research, and we have Boyer Asset Management uh, that manages money, and you know, are happy to go into our philosophy if you'd like. So John, how did you get your start in, in investment? I know your dad uh, started the business, but how did you actually get, get in there? No, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I had a kind of a different way of, of getting into business. I was somewhat, you know, from a young age was, was exposed to this while other people's, you know, parents were reading, uh, you know, uh, regular uh, nighttime books. I was being read 10Ks and Qs. Uh, <laughs> but one, one of the things, and it's a, it's a great story, and my, my dad does a really good job of taking what is a complex situation and really explaining it, explaining it so well that you know even an eight, nine, ten-year-old could do it. And I remember one of the first examples was when I was in, I think, middle school. I would come home each year, each month, uh, with an order to to buy, you know, with a little pamphlet to buy twenty dollars worth of Scholastic books. And you know, each month my dad would give twenty dollars or thirty, whatever it is. And then he started looking at it and said, "Is this a public company, uh, etc.?" And he was really looking at the business saying, what a wonderful business this is. You have um, free salesmen in the teachers. Uh, you have a, a really good product. And he was explaining to me kind of an early on what, what's a, what makes a really good business, you know, how important this distribution is, et cetera. So I was exposed to these things kind of at a, at a, at a, at a very young age. And it's, um, it's been really great. So I, to me, this is not just a job. It's, uh, I don't want to say it's a way of life. That's a kind of a, a kind of an a, a exaggeration. But it's to me, I always think about you know what are the investment implications behind 
you know, everything. And uh, he, he, he really taught me that. He, he was making you do the Phil Fisher scuttlebutt from, from nine or 10 years old. Yeah, exactly. I was, I was, I was, his, uh, I was his guinea pig um, I, on that. And it's really important. I mean, I think the, the thing with Fisher that people don't get, everyone says, oh, buy what you know. That's true, but valuation is really important. Um, so uh, with Scholastic, you had a cheap stock at, at the time. If memory served, they 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 owned really valuable uh, real estate down in uh, Soho uh, as well. So you had a, a lot of things going, and it was selling at a cheap price, and no one wanted to you know own it. So yeah, it, it's important to invest in what you know, but it's also he taught me from from a young age valuation matters. Do, do you have kids? I have two kids. How old are your kids? I have an eight and four year old and, you know, the business has been around for 45 years. If uh, if it's around uh, when, you know, they're old enough and they want to do it, uh, like my dad, I'll do a soft sell uh, into the business uh, there. It would be great to have them. That eight year old sounds like uh, he or she's about to start getting some scuttlebutt lessons. Yeah, no, exactly. It's never too early. Uh, it's never too early to start. I, they're important lessons. I mean, Learning, you know, the value of a dollar and you know, compounding things uh, is is extremely uh, extremely important. So I, my impression of Boyer uh, is that you guys were sort of looking for uh, takeover candidates, maybe originally. But when I uh, when I I went through the site, it looks like it's more of a uh, maybe a Buffett style, looking for great businesses uh, that can grow and compound over time. How, how do you characterize the, the philosophy there? The philosophy, it's pretty simple. We're, we look at everything through the lens of an acquirer. What would a knowledgeable buyer pay for a business? And that's what we, whether it's a large company, uh, it's big, you know, years ago we did Home Depot or, or Microsoft, uh, in late to, in, uh, mid to late 2000s, it's still healthy to do that exercise because if you're buying something at a significant discount to intrinsic or private market value, over time, good things will happen. What's the difference between, say, intrinsic value and uh, private market value, which sounds a little bit like uh, Mario Gabelli loves that, uh, the private market value, and, and in his private market value, he includes some sort of takeover premium. Yeah, I mean, to me, a private, the private market value is what would a knowledgeable acquirer pay for the business? You know, you, you look at precedent transactions, and, you know, Mario was my first boss on Wall Street. Uh, he's a fantastic investor. I've certainly learned, you know, uh, a lot from him and, and watching him. Um, and, yeah, so to me, I, I, I kind of think they're one and the same. Uh, it's what is a business really worth? And to me, what it's floating on your stock screen it's not what a business is worth. It's just what someone's willing to pay at that moment in time for a fractional interest in the business. What I'm looking for is if I wanted to buy the whole business, what would that be worth? And if a stock is significantly below where it's trading uh, trading at the, the value of the business, then it's something that we, would interest us. What sort of businesses are you looking for? Do you, do you, uh, will you consider cyclicals or are you, are you uh, avoid the cyclicals? How, how, do you, uh, how do you think about that? Yeah, you know, when you hear about value investing, a lot of people think, you know, deep cyclical names, you know, that's not our, I mean, we'll do some of those situations, but we, we prefer really good businesses that you can compound over time. 
And that's because the majority of our clients are US-based taxable investors. So with cyclicals, you have to be right twice. You have to know when to go in and when to go out. We prefer looking at companies that you can just compound over time and hold on to them for as long as possible until they get blatantly overvalued. Uh, just because, yeah, everyone, you know, they have this focus on fees. Everyone, you know, there's fee compression in the industry. Uh, everyone wants to pay the lowest management fees, et cetera. But really, the biggest cost that most investors face is Uncle Sam, or at least U.S. investors. And when you have to pay, you know, well in excess of 20% uh, for long-term capital gains and, you know, 40, roughly 40% for short-term, you know, that's what you should be avoiding. Yeah, Uncle Sam's your partner in every single one of the winners. Not, not much help in the losers, though. That's a terrible partnership. <laughs> I, I, lo I love the United States. I love the country. But yeah, it's it's a painful to have to pay taxes on, on transaction. And something you, you really should be mindful to us. It's not what you make, it's what you keep. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Tax alpha is a very, very large source of return that uh, not a lot of folks think about. When, you, when you're constructing these portfolios, uh, how do you think about uh, diversification, concentration? How do you size that inception? What, 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 are you, what, are you, uh, what are you guided by there? Yeah, we're really agnostic to like S&P weightings. You know, I mean, I know roughly what they are, but I, sometimes it hurts us, sometimes it helps us. But we're looking for the cheapest stocks. So we're just trying to construct a portfolio from the bottom up. You know, invest slowly over time. We don't invest everything all all at, all at once when a when a client comes in, and you know we're not you know we're stewards of, of people's capital. We're not going to put eighty percent in media names because we think they're cheap, but we're not afraid to put twenty or thirty percent in, in media names and a high weighting, let's say, in consumer discretionary financials, um, significantly above the benchmark. If we think that those stocks are cheap and if we think that certain names like energy that we don't want to buy because you know they're influenced by the price of a, of a commodity and that's not the type of business we want to own you know we can totally disregard it how uh how do you think about constructing a portfolio yeah we really take a bottoms up approach to constructing a portfolio if a client comes in unless they mandate it to us we do not get fully invested right away. We like to invest slowly over time, obviously in an upward tilting market that hurts you, but we're big believers in capital preservation. That's the most important thing. We don't even look at or we, what the major, what the indices sector weightings are. That's not, that's something that's important to us. You know, and we're not afraid to significantly, you know, put a lot of names in, let's say the consumer discretionary and media names and not put anything in, let's say, energy. We just want to buy a lot of great businesses, put them in a portfolio, invest in them slowly over time. The typical portfolio has between uh, 20, uh, 20 and 40 stocks, depending or depending on the mandate. Um, and it's uh, yeah. So so that's how that's how we look at portfolio construction. We are cognizant, you know, we're not going to put 60 or 70 percent of the portfolio in media names. Uh, we, we do look at that. We want to have some diversification. But, you know, in our opinion, a lot of managers over diversify. 
When you're putting on a position at inception, do you have any uh, limits to the sizing of the position? Are they equal weight at inception or do you size up the, the better opportunities? How does it work? Yeah, it's, it's really a case-by-case -case basis. We don't, we don't equal weight. We'll certainly have uh, names in our portfolio that let's say we start out at a 2% position you know, maybe make it a three or 4% position, but we don't start with, you know, a half a basis point or, or something like that in a position typically. Um, and we hope that positions grow in size the right way just by the stock appreciating. And, you know, we, you know, we also, you know, one of the most important things is, you know, when a stock is going down is to kind of reevaluate the thesis, make sure everything is still intact. And if it is, you know, add to it, but add to it in such a way that you, you're mindful of your original cost. Do you trim as they go up or do you prefer to, are you in or out? How, how does that work? Yeah, it's more art than science. I mean, uh, people try to make this business more complicated than, than it really is um, or, or needs to be. But as I mentioned before, you know, we're really tax sensitive. So we try not to sell things until it gets blatantly overvalued. I'd say on average, our portfolio turnover is, let's say, five to 10%. So, you know, it takes a, you know, sometimes it's like watching paint dry, but we think over, over the long term, that's what's right by the, for the client for, you know, after tax returns. The, uh, the interview on the site, your dad says uh, you look for great consumer franchises. So how do you, how do you characterize a great consumer franchise? Yeah, to us, brands are critically important to us. That's something that's very difficult uh, to replicate. It, it takes lots of marketing dollars, et cetera, and it gives consumers a huge advantage uh, or it gives a company a huge advantage with consumers. So we really like kind of two companies. One, companies just with a terrific uh, consumer franchise or companies with a great consumer franchise that are masked by a corporate name. Years ago, uh, we came up with the idea of Kushnet. And if I mention the name to most people, they have no idea what it is, uh, but they make Titleist golf balls, FootJoy golf gloves, et cetera. And believe it or not, that leads to valuation discrepancies. And over time, you know, the stock market usually does the right thing and values the company correctly, but it creates opportunities. Right. Uh, you're, you're one of the interesting things in that interview no cigar butts no cyclicals which i was a little bit surprised by i, I sort of had the impression that you, you guys did a little bit more of that but uh I, that was an interesting point that you, you raised it before that uh, you have to be right twice i've never thought about it like that once when you buy and once when you sell yeah i mean it's it's when to sell is extremely hard most people concentrate on when to buy you know, fortunately, because of the way we look at companies, a large percentage of the names that we profiled are taken over. So the decision is made for us. Um, and then we evaluate if it's a stock deal, whether we want to keep the stock or if it's cash, obviously, we're, we're forced to, to, tender, to tender our shares. And going back to your point about cigar butts, that's kind of how we started in, in the 70s. Um, you know, and I think that was just where the opportunity set also lied. There were, you know, no real computers, everything was done manually, like a high technology was having a calculator. So it was easier to have an information advantage or on, on some of these names. 
that's kind of been whittled away uh, and you have to do a little bit more homework. So yeah, if the information advantage is no longer there, and this is true for everybody, what, what are the advantages that you're using? Where, where's, the, where's the edge? The edge, to be honest, is patience. Uh, that to us is to, you know, trying to figure out where a stock is going to be three or six months from now, I think is almost impossible. And it's a really hard game to play and we choose not to play it. It, our advantage is we have terrific clients who la- enable us to hold on to names and gives a, get, judge us over multi-year periods that allow us to have these you know, temporary pricing anomalies and take advantage of them. So that's really our biggest advantage. I mean, listen, we have a great research team uh, that's, that's, that's terrific. It's been with us for a long period of time. My father's been in the business a long time. He's still very active. So we have definitely the research advantage as well. But I think having that mindset uh, of being able to sit there and not panic is, is critically important. Uh, it says on the site that there are several hiding places for uh, good positions. You look for complexity and for size. So what, or you, you find them in complexity and size. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, complexity, you know, a lot of people won't touch any like that. Let's say the John Malone names because they're so structured. They're weirdly structured. They have tracking stocks. Most people don't even know what a tracking stock is, et cetera. So that leads to things to be undervalued. So the more complex a name is, uh, kind of the more interested we are in because interested in it because most people are probably just put it in the too hard to, to analyze pile and um, move on to the next easier thing. So we, we definitely look, you know, any of the Liberty names, et cetera, um, are, are usually good hunting grounds. Well, let's talk about one of those Liberty names. Uh, let's talk about Discovery. What's the, uh, what's the thesis there? Yeah, Discovery is a really interesting company. First, you know, going back to John Malone, about a year or two, you know, the stock's roughly $29, $30. A year or two, the stock was languishing at about $18 a share. He came in and bought a lot of stock personally. Recently, he came in and bought $75 million worth personally at around $28 a share. So obviously, you don't want to blindly follow anyone, but he's a good person to at least uh, you know, take a look at. But it's, it's a really interesting asset. They own terrific... Um, franchises like their namesake discovery channel their advantage is they're able to produce content that's significantly cheaper than um you know scripted dramas they have four uh, roughly four billion cumulative global subscribers they're able to amortize that cost over it and the great thing about discovery is their programming you know resonates across cultures you know if you want to watch animals in you know in africa that resonates to Europeans, Americans, Asians, et cetera. So they're able to uh, transcend cultures. So it, it, it's, it's a really kind of a, a unique asset. It's cheap. Uh, they bought uh, recently scripts a few years ago. Now they're the number one network for women uh, between age 18 to you know, 54. So they're really valuable. People are going to want to put them in skinny bundles, et cetera. Uh, they have a a loyal audience. Uh, we think the stock's worth roughly forty-nine dollars, and we wouldn't be surprised if one day someone, you know, a bigger 
entity like a Comcast, I'm just using that as an example, comes in and, and acquires them. Uh, Malone does the annual interview with Eric Schatzker. I, I think it was with Schatzker on, on Bloomberg. Did you catch that one where he said, um, sorry, you, you, did you see that one? No, I, 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 I'm definitely going to take a look at it. I've, I try and watch as many Malone or read as many Malone interviews as possible. What, what did he say? I oh, had this great line where he said, I just ran my, I ran my screen. So he has this, I think it's a price to free cash flow screen. And he said uh, Discovery was the top name in that in that screen, so I went and bought seventy five billion dollars worth of stock. Yeah, it's you know to him. I mean, yeah, I think I, the free cash flow yield I think is roughly fourteen fifteen percent on right. on Discovery. Uh, so they they're, they they were able to do the Scripps deal, and the reason the the stock got slammed, it went from thirty down to you know seventeen or sixteen or seventeen dollars was it was a buyback story and there were a lot of fast money hedge funds in there and they were upset that they weren't using the money to buy back stock. But we saw with Viacom, you need to invest in programming. You need to have really good quality content. So buying you know, the, the Food Network, et cetera, we thought was a good investment. Now they're, uh, they generate a ton of free cash flow. They're, they're delevering and then they're starting to buy back stock um, you know, they they bought a, a decent chunk in the third or fourth quarter of last year. Um, let's talk about two other names that are a little bit related: MSG and MSGN. What are the? Uh, how's the thesis there? Yeah, MSG is a really interesting name, and that's you know to take a step back. We got there. We used to invest and, and write about Cablevision. Cablevision was controlled by the Dolan family. And everyone loves to hate the Dolans. And we've actually had a pretty good experience investing alongside of them. In 2007, they tried to steal the company. Um, and, but they said that they, they wouldn't do the deal unless the majority of the minority shareholders approved the deal. It was voted down. And since then, they've been unbelievably shareholder friendly. They had the highest uh, you know, payout ratio in the cable industry. They ended up spinning out MSG. MSG ended up spinning out MSGN. Cablevision spun out AMCX, you know, The Walking Dead, et cetera. And then Cablevision sold itself to Altice for a price we never thought we would, we would get. So we have a quite different view of the Dolans than most people. They may be horrible uh, team owners. I mean, the Knicks, I think under under Dolan have lost over 800 games. They haven't made the playoffs in, I think, five or six years. I mean, they're absolutely terrible, but from a shareholder perspective, they're terrific. So that, that, that brings me to, to Madison Square Garden. It's the epitome of a trophy asset. Uh, you know, you, for, you, you know, you're buying the garden, the air rights associated with the garden, you're buying the Knicks, you're buying the Rangers, you're buying Radio City Music Hall, the LA Forum, a valuable entertainment business. And basically at the current stock price, you're just paying for the Knicks and the Rangers and getting everything else for free. Um, it's a, you know, it's about a $300 stock, uh, $200 stock. We think it's worth about three, 300 um, or so dollars per, per share. I, and, you know, there's also a catalyst. One of the things that we always look for is a catalyst. What's going to make the stock ascend in value over a you know, relatively reasonable period of time? And in, in, in the case of MSG, 
they're spinning out the entertainment division uh, next uh, sometime in the first quarter of of this year. And so um, that you know could lead to possibly the Knicks or the Rangers being acquired. So that he's simplifying the business, which is something we like. And you think that that spun out stock maybe you don't see any diminution in the value of the existing stock but you get the other one as found value is that the is that the thesis well it, it's more now you're going to have really two companies one uh these the sports teams that are you know will have a, their own shareholder base who want to own these trophy assets and someone who wants kind of the faster growing entertainment business and people can kind of make their own decisions on on what they want to own plus he he makes it just easier if someone wanted to come in. It was interesting that they structured it, that the entertainment company was a parent company. So a buyer could come in now and buy the Knicks and or the Rangers and not endanger the, you know, the tax free nature of, of a spin out. Right. Uh, so uh, totally unrelated. Haynes Brands, what's the what's the thesis there? Well, that goes back to great consumer franchises. I mean, Hanes, you know, you have the legacy, you know, Hanes, which is extremely popular globally. Um, they also have Bonds, which is, you know, popular in, in Australia, et cetera. But one thing they also have that most people don't realize is Champion. And Champion is, is growing like a weed and they're not getting credit for it. So one of the things that they could do is spin out the Champion brand um, over the next couple of years to kind of demonstrate the value of champion it's roughly a 14 dollars stock we think it's worth 27 or 28 dollars the reason why it's so depressed is just generally you know target walmart their big customers are you know aren't doing as well and they just need to adapt to a new medium i don't think people are buying less underwear because people are buying things online they just need to kind of be educated to figure out um you know, to buy it on Amazon, et cetera, which is also a fast growing category for them. And interesting, they, they're not losing market share online. So the value of the brand is, is extremely important. There are studies that say that, you know, the closer you get to the body, the less likely you want private label um, to. So yeah, I think private label is only about 10% of the, uh, of the underwear business. What's uh, what's the reason for the popularity of Champion? Is that is that a it's a it's a rowing uh, brand, right? Is that the? It's it's Athleta Leisure, uh, you know, same thing with Lululemon, you know, th- those type of names. People just like it. There, it's just resonate. This was a brand that was big, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and it's just making a comeback. And it's just yeah, as I said, it's growing 20, 25 percent a year. Uh, and I think this year they think. I don't have it from memory, but but a two billion dollars of sales is is not out of the realm of possibility. It's been uh, it's been a rough run for value investors generally. Have you have you guys seen any of that? Uh, what, how, do you have any thoughts on it? Yeah, it's it's been unbelievably painful, um, but you know it's terrible to watch these high flyers, you know, soar to even higher heights and watching some of the our stocks languish but then you have to look at it this way we're still having really good absolute returns we might not be getting uh amazon apple type type returns but over time or tesla over time i think value is going to win out and you know under some metrics you know i've seen a bunch of charts you know 
stock market hasn't been, you know, value hasn't been this cheap since 99. And we know what happened, you know, a year or so later. And at some point in time, there's going to be a rotation. There's always, you know, mean reversion, et cetera. And in the end, I think buying stocks for less than they're worth is a, is a winning strategy. Yeah, it's a logical strategy, at least, even if it hasn't been a winning strategy in the, in the very short term. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It's certainly uh, in the short, even in the medium term, it's been, you know, it, it growth is trounced value. But over time, uh, I think value wins out. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that value has done pretty well on an absolute basis, even relative to its own history. And that has resulted in, if you look at, you know, just ranking on price to cash flow or something like that, looking at the cheapest 10%, the cheapest decile. The cheapest decile looks a little bit rich relative to its long-term history, which could be the result of interest rates. But that's one of the things that makes me a little bit nervous that even the cheap stocks are, are a little bit expensive, even though they haven't sort of performed as well as the most expensive what do you guys do in a scenario like that? Do you, do you hold cash? Do you do you short? We we don't sh- generally short. I think shorting is a great way for people to try to get incentive fees. Uh, if you're a really true long-term investor with a, a multi-year time horizon, you're you're throwing away money. Uh, as long as you can take the volatility, there's a real reason. If if you want to smooth out your returns to hedge, etc., I get it. But if you're really looking at things, holding things for 10, 15, 20 years, then hedging or shorting doesn't make sense. It's a really tough game. Um, so, but we're not afraid to hold cash. That's kind of our hedge if we don't see, you know, bargain basement price prices. We're not going to buy something just for the sake of buying it. What's, what sort of ca- what sort of cash holdings are you are you comfortable with you what sort of level of cash do you get let, let build up in the portfolios I think it's a case by case basis I mean we know most of our clients so we, we take it on a client by client basis but if it's kind of like a a, a pooled vehicle you know 10 to 20 percent you know we go higher than that you know 20 25 percent in some cases if we really can't find things to buy, but you know, we have a team of analysts. There's always something. There's always uh, a mispricing. Things obviously can always get cheaper. But you know, that's our job is to find the find these ideas. Yeah. So that's how you're constructing the portfolio, sort of on an ad hoc basis. You, if you find a position, you put it on. If you don't, you don't have any kind of requirement to to be fully invested or anything like that. Yeah. For for most of our mandates, we don't have a requirement to be fully invested. I realize you know some you know. I, I realize some people have a view that you should always be fully invested. We just like to have dry power. Uh, let's talk about the research side for a little bit. Uh, what what sort of uh, how do, what products do you put out, and what's the team look like? How, how does it function? Yeah, we have, we have a team of four analysts plus myself and my father, and their job is to come out with great investment ideas, and we publish them on a pretty frequent basis. I mean, we're, we're not doing daily notes or anything like that. You know, we have roughly nine deliverables a year. So we provide our research clients with, you know, thoroughly research reports on companies that are generally outside the mainstream. I mean, there are really two types of companies we follow. One that have very little Wall Street coverage, you know, maybe two, three analysts at the most, or, an example of a, a stock 
that we have a view that goes against consensus and our our value add is to say hey um, we think this is interesting for xyz reasons when you say deliverables is that the newspaper you publish an entire newsletter covering all of them at each stage or if you find an idea you you publish it immediately yeah we we're old-fashioned we still actually send everything via hard copy you know um we have heard of the internet we realize (laughs) it's 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 cheaper and greener to do it via electronic means, but we like kind of having paper. Um, so yes, yeah, seven times a year, we come out with a, re- you know, a research uh, featuring three companies. So they get, you know, someone, you know, get 21 ideas. We do a thematic piece uh, at the end of every summer, early fall. This year's theme was, and it was quite interesting. I think I sent you a copy of it was on spin outs and why they've been such terrible investments over the past decade you know spin outs you know people have always thought are winning strategies but right. over the last over the last decade they've significantly underperformed and then we picked four names that we thought were interesting that fit the theme and then our last part what we're probably best known for is every december it's our christmas gift to our clients we come out with something called the forgotten 40 and it's our 40 best ideas for the year ahead where we do one page snapshots on names we profiled, names we know, and why we think we're gonna, they're going to outperform uh, in, the, uh, in the year ahead. The spin-outs is a, an interesting phenomenon. I, everybody's read the, uh, the Greenblatt Yellow Book where he talks about spins and typically everybody, before that book, I guess, you'd want to go with the more popular stock, but I, I think that uh, Greenblatt said you want to look at the one that is, that the, you've got to follow the incentives, look at the spin, the one that's sort of, likely to be the, the, the baby thrown out with the bathwater. But then that's been a very tough strategy for a decade, I guess. Uh, is that because everybody read the book and they followed, the, uh, they followed his advice? Or what, what, what happened? Yeah, it, you know, we came up with a couple of, of ideas, and I actually wrote, a, wrote an article that appeared in Forbes on it. Um, you know, one of the things is activist investing. has They've forced companies to spin out divisions that probably shouldn't have been spun out. And so you're getting a much weaker crop of, of spin outs these days. So that, that's, that's one reason. Also, more money going to passive investing. Active managers have less money to invest in these more you know, one-off situations. So there are a lot of different reasons why this occurred. But we don't want to be backward looking. You want to be forward looking. And, and one of the things that you, you mentioned was, you know, incentives. To us, incentives matter. And in the report, we discuss, you know, w- um, ways to look for winning spinouts. And one of the things that is consistent is look for where the, like an IAC, for example, where they kept match, where they kept 85%, they're going to be spinning out, I think, the, the, the remaining 15% later on. And they did Angie's list, same, same thing. So you, you want to look for, for incentives. If uh, You want to look where management is going. If a whole bunch of, uh, of the team is going to the spun-off entity, maybe they think the prospects are better going forward. So you have to really look, you know, follow the money. Do you follow IAC closely? It's a name that we profiled four or five, four or five years ago, and then we profiled it again uh, in the fall. So it's a name I know, know well. Every time 
it doesn't look cheap enough and I haven't pulled the trigger and I, and I kick myself, but it's a great business. And, um, you know, Angie's an interesting business as well. John, uh, Barry Diller is an unbelievable capital allocator. He's just done a fantastic job uh, in his career and is someone people should be comfortable investing alongside of. There's a recent article uh, about them not taking any moonshots. Um, that, and I, I looked through that list of investments that he's made. It's, he's had this phenomenal track record of putting a few hundred million dollars or maybe up to a billion dollars in, in multiple companies and getting returns that are like 15, 20x on those positions. I, I, I don't know what he's doing. I want, I want to figure out how, we, how he's seeing it. Yeah, no, he's... And one of the things IAC was, was getting punished for and, and the reason why the stock was depressed was they refused to bid up companies. Uh, you know, the private market, you know, the private market stocks were so, the private market was so expensive, they didn't want to play in that game. They were very value focused. So now with what happened to WeWork, et cetera, you know, maybe they'll be able to get, you know, some of these, um, you know, early stage investments at, at reasonable prices. I had a look at the uh, balance sheet recently that I think the last queue they had something like $3 billion in cash and I think they'll have five once they complete some of these final spends. It'd be an interesting uh, vehicle when the market gets a little bit cheaper, which I guess it does at some stage, and then Dillers in there with a lot of dry powder. It'll be uh, worth revisiting, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting name. They're, you know, they have great properties from Investopedia you know, on, so it's, it's something investors should definitely take a look at. What, uh, what do you think is the thing that turns it for, for value? What's the, uh, what's the, uh, the catalyst? Because it's, it's been an extraordinarily long kind of painful drawdown that I, I, always say, I, I used to say it didn't, it's not as deep as the 2000, but it's, it's taken much, much longer. But now we're, sort of, we're getting to that point that it is, uh, it's looking like 2000. I mean, I guess, what was the catalyst in 2000? I mean, there was really nothing that people can, you know, people have theories, et cetera. There doesn't necessarily have to be one event that's, that, that makes it turn. Is it just valuation? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a different world now with, with passive, you know, owning 22% of, uh, on average, of, a, of an S&P 500 company. So I, 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 I don't know what turns. Is it something with interest rates that they start to when they start to rise? If they start to rise, um, does that turn? I, I have absolutely no idea. I just think at some point it will, uh, and I, and I <laughs> hope sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I, I thought uh, you know last year about late late August there was a, that was the the as far as the rubber band got stretched between growth and value, and it looked like value had a pretty good run, and then there was that early September, first two weeks of September, there was that day where value had its best day since sort of 2000 and momentum had its worst day. And then it was followed up on the, started on the 9th, followed up on the 10th. And it's been a pretty good run since then, but it's been soft again, coming into 2020. And then you contrast that with things like Tesla that have, uh, I don't know whether that's a short squeeze or what that is, but Tesla's had, you know, three X from its, from its bottom. I have, Tesla is inexplainable. I. <laughs> this is why you can't short on valuation. That's right. it's 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 the classic example of it. I have no idea why people are plowing money into this. This is a car company, uh, and they it's a high barriers to entry. There's 
they're pricing in perfection, more than perfection at this point. So I think, you know, buyer beware. Tesla, uh, they were celebrating recently the fact that it went through $100 billion in market cap, but it's got some debt in there too. So the, the EV is more like $110 billion in Tesla. And then it's not making any money. So the, the most bullish report I've seen was in Barron's where they said they might make $5 billion sometime in the future. So you've got to pay $110 billion for a theoretical five sometime in the future. That's, that's not the kind of investing I like to do. No, it's to me, I don't know who's who's buying it. If, if this is retail institutions, is it a short squeeze? I have no idea. But to me, it just it, it doesn't make sense. But it's one of those things where it's interesting to talk about and it's interesting to kind of follow. But you shouldn't spend so shouldn't spend so much time focusing on it because it, it takes you away from, you know, companies you're actually going to invest in. Um, but I think at some point, you know, Tesla breaks. And when it is, people are going to lose a lot of money and a lot of money very quickly. Well, let's go back to the, uh, so we've talked about the research side. Let's talk about the asset management side. How, you've got, how does that work? You have managed accounts. Do you have a pooled vehicle? Yeah, we have, we have a pooled vehicle. We have managed accounts. Um, we have, you know, all sorts of different ways people can, can invest in us. You know, one of the things we pride ourselves is, is you know treating each account individually and, and being tax efficient. So how does the uh, how's the pooled vehicle work? What's the structure? It's just a a 1940 Act vehicle because there's so many regulations, etc. I, I you can't I talk about it. I can't talk about it, which is crazy. Um, but I the lawyer in me, I'm a recovering lawyer, um, is. Uh, says I probably shouldn't, but we ha we have a variety of ways people can invest from as you know a small amount of money up until a, a separately managed account. Did you practice, or did you go straight to uh, asset management? I, I did practice law. I was a litigator for a couple of years, and um, I realized how much I disliked it. I, I I know you were a lawyer as well, billing by the hour and trying to figure out. You know how you're going to build something was just a really difficult way for me to make a living and you know my dad did not want me to join the business he uh he thought um it's just he, he just discouraged me but he was nice enough to to allow me to to join and I'm, I'm really glad i did i i loved it i love it i've always been interested in investing in stocks and, and learning from your from your dad is is terrific. Yeah, it's nice to get away from the billable hour. It sort of it, it it changes the way you think. If you've got a little bit of time to think about things, I think you make better decisions rather than sort of um, trying to work out whether something is worth, in fact, the amount of time that you're spending on it. Yeah, I think it's just a terrible incentive system. I think at some point in time that goes away. You know, I, I just. It's a it's just a difficult way to to make to make a living. Plus, litigation is is, is by nature is adversarial. Yeah. It just wasn't it wasn't for me. What what area of litigation were you in? Well, I was doing medical malpractice defense work, and I happened to at the time been dating and engaging and engaged with uh, my now wife, who's a physician. So I couldn't. The only way to make real money. And I'm not entirely motivated by money, but the only way to make real money is to be on the plaintiff side right. and to marry a doctor and then go sue her friends 
wasn't uh, wasn't a great way to. Uh, you won't get invited uh, to many cocktail parties with that. No, not 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 at all. So, it, it, the subject matter was wasn't you know it was all depressing bad outcomes. Uh, so the subject matter combined with the billable hour combined with wanting to have a good marriage it just uh, wasn't for me. Yeah, that's my that's my theory too. You want to stay as far away from human misery as you possibly can, and there's a lot of it in litigation, and particularly that type of litigation. Yes, absolutely. It's just unfortunately with it is they're just bad outcomes. Most of the time, listen, there's always negligence, but most of the time it's just you know kind of an act of God or just just a mistake, and you know unfortunately there's a lawsuit from it, and it's just really no one wins except really the plaintiff's lawyers. Um, where are you finding value now are there any sectors that you think are particularly cheap any industries or uh, what's what's interesting I I think media is really interesting I mean I think in the end you know content wins out uh, for for sure I think small mid and micro cap names haven't been this cheap in a very long period of, of time relative to, you know, the larger, their larger names. I think that's just a good place to, to hunt. You know, historically, you know, small cap names have outperformed and they've underperformed, you know, for the past decade plus. So that, that's a good place to go hunting. But yet you really have to take it on a stock by stock basis. Yeah, anything that's a, kind of a sensible strategy over the long term seems to have not worked for a long time. Value hasn't worked. Size being in those smaller names hasn't worked. Even even equal weighting, which has been tradition, you know, if you equal weight an index, that's traditionally been a pretty good way of outperforming the the, uh, the market cap weighted version of it, just because it's sort of a quasi size, quasi value approach, and even that's that's underperformed. It's been a very unusual market for the last probably decade. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. You you look at the top ten um, weighted. Names in the S&P 500, they were responsible for, I think, 27% of the indices gains. You know, Apple and Microsoft were a huge chunk of it. It's really a tale of, uh, of, of two markets. I don't know what's causing it. I don't know if it's the flow from active to passive that's just exaggerating everything. Is it interest rates being historically low? But the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter. This is kind of the hand you're dealt and you just have to kind of react and try to position your portfolios the best way possible. What's driving the uh, the undervaluation in media names, do you think? Is it is it uh, all of that sort of Netflix and distribution over the internet? Is that the is that the reason? Yeah, I think that that's a, a big reason. You know, it all started a few years ago when Bob Iger on a conference call, he's the you know CEO of Disney, uh, started talking about ESPN subscriber losses. Not that this started at all, but exacerbated it and people are just worried that you're going to have a world where people you know aren't going to have you know traditional cable subscriptions etc just broadband but now you have all these skinny bundles and you have Netflix at $14 here and then you have to pay for Amazon Prime and then you have Disney at $7 and all these other ones at the end it's not a skinny bundle after a certain point in time so I think in the end, you have to look at the companies that have the best content. They're going to win out. They're going to be, there's going to be a way for them to get distributed and paid for them. And that's why we look at really good content owners that people want to own, like a, like a Discovery. 
Yeah, I was, uh, that was one of the questions I, I, that came to mind when I looked at Discovery. Do you, do you feel like there's any potential for something that's more like a Netflix style uh, to compete with Discovery? Because if you've said, you know, Netflix does have those uh, lots of nature documentaries on it. I mean, Discovery is a huge head start. I, they have so many hours of films in their library already. They have, you know, brand loyalty, et cetera. I mean, listen, you can make the case that Amazon, uh, with their case, is going to disrupt everything. And but they, they don't have a great um, history of, you know, they have a lot of losers. Everyone thinks about the winners. Um, but I, I don't think, I think in the end, Discovery is going to find its way into into all this or the majority of the skinny bundles, potentially someone takes them out. They just have a really strong hand. Do they have a, uh, a standalone service that you, you can access other than through the cable? They have one of these apps, you know, Discovery Go, that's growing. I think it's grown 10x already. And there you're able to do more targeted advertising, et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's going to help them as well. Uh, John, we're coming up on time. If, uh, if folks want to get in contact with you, how do they do that? And I understand you have some, you have an offer. Yeah. Well, you can always visit our website, uh, boyervaluegroup.com. That's, uh, B-O-Y-A-R. Everyone misspells it. Um, and you know, if, if you want to purchase the, you know, the forgotten 40, it's still on sale. If you, if you email info at boyervaluegroup.com and put acquires multiple, in the subject line, you know, uh, we'll give you a f- years free of uh, the acquires multiple. So it's a it's a win win. Uh, we'd love to you know talk to you more about our, our service. We'll uh, we'll stick that in the show notes for anybody who wants to get who wants to get in touch with uh, with John. Hey John, thanks so much. I, I love seeing you at all of the uh, conferences when we're when we're at the same in the same place. It's been great talking to you over yeah, the years. I, no, it's been great. Are you going to be ringing the bell soon? Yeah, well, we're still trying to sort that out. Hopefully, uh, hopefully, not too distant future. I'll, I'll certainly let you know when that happens. There's a there's a long line of people who want to ring that bell. Yeah, well, when you do, uh, let me know. I'd love to love to get together. And thanks for having me on the show. Will do. My absolute pleasure, John Boyer, Boyer Value. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.